This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. For Steve Jorgensen and iUniverse, this is J. Douglas Barker. Today we are reviewing the book Of the People, by the People, for the People, a national K-12 service initiative. The writer, Sandy McCain. Good morning, Sandy. Good morning, thanks. Tell me a little bit about your background. In looking over your history, you have been involved in music and several other activities. Tell us about that. Well, um, I've been trained as a professional pianist. Um, I studied with the Cassidus Du family um, for people who follow professional musicians. They were sort of the French pianists of their day. And I started with them when I was very young. They took a few students kind of to pass on their heritage from little up to a few people, and I was one of the quote-unquote lucky ones, although I was sort of pushed into that, not with heavy-duty stage parent kind of thrust, but, you know, I was a good kid, and opportunity presented itself, and I went down that path, so um, I was trained from little up in classical music by them, and then I went to Juilliard, and it wasn't until later in life that I started to think about other things that were of personal interest to me and kind of headed in the direction of where this book has now taken me that's more of a a personal passion. You highlight this about the book. As a nation, we value community service, but we don't include it in our education for children. The book is a rational blueprint for creating a core subject area for community service, like math or history, starting in kindergarten and sustained through high school graduation. Yeah, um, it's actually a very simple concept in in its premise, but it expands to become beautifully complex and uh, very simply put, we gather our resources, include our youth, and get to work. What prompted the idea? Um, well, as I was raising my youngest daughter, Charlotte, I found myself searching for a service involvement for her that could be ongoing and developmental and what started out as rolling up loose change around the house to buy a few hygiene items when she was around five years old, developed into a rather large-scale undertaking. Um, It became a project called Charlotte Circle, a circle of friends, a circle of influence, which was actually not just community service work, but turned out to be what would be called a service learning project. And within a few years, it grew to include our community hygiene cabinet, our Violence Intervention Safe House, Hospital Psychiatric Unit, and our Low-Income Housing Program. So every month she would call the staff at these organizations to ask what was needed, and we would shop for supplies, deliver to the organizations, and then she would create a monthly report that went to her supporters in the community. And this went on every month through high school graduation, and by then she had raised and managed over $70,000 for a variety of community needs. So, um, witnessing this process and growth over the years inspired the work that led to the concept in the book. 
Now, community service is a clear idea. A lot of people are familiar with that, but service learning is not familiar. Could you clarify what the distinction is? Sure. Um, service learning is pretty much what the term implies, a service experience that is specifically constructed to educate. So if you think about a community service activity like serving in a soup kitchen, the assumption is that you show up and you get to work as instructed. In a service learning project, you first learn about a genuine community need and then work together with staff with community-based organizations, typically to create a problem-solving approach or a plan of action. So that becomes step one, which is clearly educational in nature, and step two is the service act itself. And then the next step is reflection after the service work and assessment of the value of the service for the community and for ourselves as participants, typically some sort of written reflection. And the last piece is celebration, drawing the larger community into awareness of what took place and its significance. There are four parts to a service learning project as an educational structure. There's preparation, action, reflection, and celebration. And why do you think it's so important to start young? Uh, especially in kindergarten, that seems like a very young age. Yeah, I think it, it strikes people as being very young, but um, our youngest children are capable of contribution, and they show the desire for inclusion from a young age. They're always asking us to look at what they've done with repetitive requests for our interest and recognition, and yet from kindergarten to graduation, they're basically asked to learn about what adults have done and are doing in current events. And it's pretty clear that adults haven't solved a lot of basic community world problems. But we don't give our youth much opportunity to help. We essentially ask them to sit on the sidelines. Um, youth, youth have vision and energy to bring to the table, and quite honestly, they're part of the people, and they deserve voice and the opportunity to contribute. We know that first experiences in life set the stage for what will come, and our youth need to experience the connect between real life and the relevance of education. Um, I, I, and I think that there's another reason to start young, because we do better as adults when we look through the lens of our children. They remind us of what's important in life, and we ought to be able to get to a peaceful and productive world. And how does that affect high school dropout rates? Does it, do you think, affect it at all? Well, you know, I think that high school dropout rates are a telltale sign that somewhere we've missed a connection, that, um, you know, we, we sort of back up a little bit toward maybe the beginning of high school to take a swing at that problem. But, um, you know, if we started at the beginning, at the inception of our children's involvement in school and build on the excitement they have to go to school and become part of the real world as they're seeing it through their eyes, um, we would set the stage that would probably end up affecting how they feel as young adults when they're hitting high school. Good advice. Part of the title of the people. What resources do we currently have to get initiatives like this off the ground? Oh, wow. Uh, we have so many outstanding service projects that meet genuine community needs. Um, when I would read about a project, the ongoing question of why we don't replicate kept coming as the sort of point of conscience. Um, there wasn't enough to read about them and let them float away that they were value, and even if I didn't know how in my life I felt the need to capture them. So I began gathering them into a database when I would read about them and organizing them by topic. So 
Um, you know, if we take food, for example, the need for food or food insecurity and gather the projects we've already created, you'd find more than just canned food drives and holiday meals. Um, there are meals on wheels to get food to people who have difficulty getting to food. There are perishable food projects, field gleaning, so we don't lose excess produce. Um, weekend backpacks for kids. And it, it goes past there under the topic of food. It branches into gardening, not just community gardening, but composting and schools involved in vermiculture, um, where kids are more intrigued by seeing worms involved in the process and what happens when you take compost and it turns into what gardeners call black holes. Um, and then there are even projects where kids are growing food and creating products to sell to the community. Um, so there's a depth of project resources to draw from, not just one example in the food um, area, but we've got project originators to help us, we have schools, teachers, service learning we've already developed as an educational structure, nonprofits to help us assess, the internet to join us up nationwide, and then um, there's the general population where so many of us already contribute and seek more ways to engage in giving. You've also recommended by the people. How do we create a national service curriculum so that, uh, that runs from kindergarten through high school graduation? That seems like a daunting task. Yeah, well, <laughs> um, you know, it, it takes an organization, and I've put a lot of thought into this. Um, you know, if you take a database of projects that are organized by topic, we could generate a national checklist and then from that, we can create local community checklists of projects. And the first priority would be to select projects for our youth based on age and curriculum, and then the rest are available to community members. So the middle section of the book, in terms of what we could create using this resource of all these projects we have, um, traces a path of service learning projects in detail from kindergarten through grade six with ways to build into the upper grade. So the initial goal is to build a foundation in elementary school upon which the upper grades can build and contribute with more complex project components. And the projects that are in this middle section evolved from work with teachers who, for the most part, were not familiar with service learning. And then as projects formed, I took the picture, if you will, and gathered what was taking place into an organizational framework. So if you can imagine that there are these topic areas in every grade where these kids have leadership roles, if there are known project areas for each grade, our kids can look forward to a rite of passage into new leadership roles and community members can be turning to our youth for information. Now is this project that you have outlined, is it something that could be taken globally? Uh, yeah, very much so. Um, you know, Jay, as Americans we're known for giving to areas of global need. So to have a global component inside this model um, is just moving forward to include it in the education of our youth. Um, the concept includes a sister-city relationship in a developing area of the world for every school district nationwide. A specific grade level would have this leadership role be the funnel point for all community work in this area and these students would communicate with their peers nationwide to create a, a view of our global progress. Um, just as we would have a national projects checklist, we have a global projects checklist that address unique cultural and geographical conditions. 
So we'd be talking within this model about developing a web of international humanitarian relations, working relationships among youth, supported by teachers and parents in a sustained curriculum from generation to generation. Now, this is an ambitious project idea. The organization seems to be the key. How do we accomplish an organizational structure? I think most of us know that at some point, whether we are built for organization or not, we have to include it in our lives, and this initiative is no different. Um, I think we need to organize our service work just as we would organize our personal lives, with consideration for food, shelter, heat, clothing, um, and how we're going to manage those needs from day to day. Um, you know, the idea of a checklist is that you don't forget the things you need to do. Um, with a community checklist, you'd be able to see what projects are up and running or there are vacancies. Um, there would be project models to draw from. Implication of well-known needs would be replaced with greater variety of projects. We'd become aware of more needs and more ways to contribute. Um, you know, the, the design of it needs to be flexible to allow the people to suggest from grassroots perspective um, with one funnel point at the top that allows information to pass from the people to the people. And then we need a solid framework in our schools to create comprehensive communication among our youth nationwide so they can see their contributions, their ability to contribute, and a framework that sustains this kind of progressive work from generation to generation as challenges shift. Well, building on the foundation of of the people, by the people, and for the people, for all of us, how is this initiative for all of us? What does it provide? Well, yeah. Um, when we meet community needs, our neighborhoods become healthier and safer. And if we extend that outreach globally, our world becomes safer. When we gain engage with our youth and service in the community, we develop relationships that enrich our lives. We, we feel better when we take care of our own, and the community is essentially the human family that surrounds us as part of our lives and the lives of our children. I think um, just knowing that this work is taking place, that we can account for the challenges and assess our progress, knowing that our children are at the center of this work, working with their peers nationwide and globally, can really give us that thing we call hope for the future. Well, hope's an important ingredient. Uh, what brought you to the decision to write this book? What motivated you? Uh, I think I fit the description pretty aptly of the social entrepreneur who becomes all or nothing focused on the solution and vision. Um, I reached out to all the logical contexts I could think of to get this idea off the ground. Didn't need a nonprofit or grant, and my congressional representatives had interest, but no directive for where to go next. Um, I met with staff in the Department of Education, the Corporation for National and Community Service, Learn and Serve, and even someone in the Department of Defense, and they all concurred that the initiative is where we need to be and that it was ahead of the curve. Um, my assessment after these encounters was that the initiative was a significant revamp of their current frameworks, and they, they didn't see a way to incorporate it or take it forward. Um, I wrote letters to the president and the first lady and got the typical mass mail response letters. And um, I even tried calling the White House and had a nice conversation with security about the reality of my dilemma in trying to reach the president. Well, congratulations so, on getting um, that far. That's good. 
Yeah, um, you know, the only route that I could see at that point to forward the idea was to write a book for more people to envision the logic, see the doability of the initiative, and its potential impact in so many needful areas. That, you know, maybe, maybe my state senator, who's seen the outcomes of potential and he wrote the forward, could send the book to the president, because it seems that that is the office that would take us to the next step, because we need that funnel point at the top that can really organize us without dictating to us. Well, you've managed to put this together in 128 pages. Is this going to be a complicated read, or is this something almost anybody could understand? My, my hope is that it's clear enough for somebody to see the kinds of questions that would come up and find the answers for them, you know, to see how it could play out. That's why those projects in the middle section are detailed as they are, so that you, you know, you would really have a sense of what service learning is, that it's, it really is a curricular, a very um, educational kind of vantage point on the idea of community service. And who do you think this book is going to appeal to? Uh, it's hard for me to understand why it wouldn't appeal to someone, um, which may just be, you know, that passionate side of me. But I think anyone who cares about others or cares about the environment or is curious about possibilities we may not have considered or conceived yet. Um, anybody who cares about the tensions in the global arena and how they might play out over time. Um, anyone who thinks public education could be bettered with the inclusion of a service curriculum for our youth or um, the possibility of coming together as Americans with a fresh sense of purpose and being involved with our children. Well, I love your passion. What, uh, what one thing would you like people to take away from this book when they read it? Um, the inspiration to seek the next steps to realize the initiative, which I do describe in the book. Um, if this need for it hits home, as it seems to when I talk to people I meet, then we need to generate a dialogue and a voice to bring this to the attention of the Office of the President to move it forward. Um, we could start projects, some of the projects that are in the book, but it really won't get us to that connection among ourselves that's critical for the initiative to really take off. Um, you know, some of the starting projects is not really different than what we already have. And to initiate this and get it running, what would it look like if it was in place? Mm, um, imagine children looking forward to rite of passage in community leadership roles with middle and high school students working on advanced components to support the work of the younger students. Or imagine food garnering models replication, replicated nationwide. Or, Every community having a sister city in a developing area of the world. Students um, in the same grades nationwide combining their project outcomes to see the large-scale impact of their work. Or imagine the conversation that would ensue among people from different communities nationwide if this kind of positive work is taking place. Well, this is an ambitious project that you've outlined. Are there any other books in the marketplace that are similar to this? Not that I know of. Um, I know there are books about community service projects, about service learning projects, um, books about why these activities are important, and yet I know of none that design a nationally coordinated curriculum that runs from kindergarten through graduation and one that creates an integration of local, national, and global outreach. And what was the most challenging part of writing this? This, again, is a very ambitious idea. Um, the most challenging part for me was patience because I'm a now person and it's taken a long time for this moment in time 
to evolve. Well, thank you so much for putting this together. It certainly is something that should get us thinking. The book title again is Of the People, By the People, For the People, a national K-12 through service initiative. The writer, Sandy McCain. Sandy, tell me, where can we get a copy of this book? Um, you can get it on Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, um, iUniversal Publisher, and you can also get it um, on my website, which is the title of the initiative, k12serviceinitiative.com. And on my website, the entire book can be accessed free of charge. Um, like so many social entrepreneurs, my real interest is getting the idea up and running and getting the idea out to as many people as possible. So I downloaded every chapter onto my website so that anyone can access the ideas and models without a deterrent. Spectacular. Thank you for sharing your passion. Thanks, Andy, again for joining us today. Thanks, Jay. I really appreciate the opportunity to have this interview as a way to help forward the initiative. Honored to speak with you. For Steve Jorgensen and iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana, through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage, connectwithjulianainmedia.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to TogiNet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on TogiNet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on TogiNet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. Our guest today is Pierre Hagey, author of Wake Up, Lazarus, Paths to Catholic Renewal. This is Volume 2. Welcome, Pierre. Thanks for joining us. Tell me about this book. You have written a previous book about Catholic renewal. This is the second in a series. 
Right. Well, it may seem that the topic is so large, I can't even finish in two volumes. I'm working on volume three. Uh, uh, see, in the first volume, I basically, uh, it was rather negative in the sense I emphasized the Catholic Church has very serious problems. I, I wanted to be a little positive at the end, but uh, that was left for volume two. So in, in this volume, uh, I begin, I find inspiration in Latin America, as uh, you might be surprised to find out. Um, and it's just a nice coincidence <clears throat> that uh, Pope Francis was one of the main architects of the Aparecida document, which is the one where I find all my inspiration. So it's just a nice coincidence that he became Pope and promotes ideas which I also um, favor very much. I notice you traveled to Lima, Peru. You've traveled really worldwide, uh, d done some extensive travel. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Now, you may like to know what is so Im uh, important in that document. Absolutely. Le uh, let me, if I can get to that page that summarizes what is there. What is important is what is not there. Uh, is not there anything about original sin, nothing about Adam and Eve, nothing about redemption from sin, nothing on obedience, nothing on church authority, nothing on the mass as sacrifice, and nothing about the needs of the sacraments. So you may say, that's, that's, is this Catholic? <laughs> this, this would probably be of appeal to a lot of denominations and a lot of churches. Well, 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 because you don't talk about it doesn't mean you don't believe it. That's the first point. The second point, the Pope has made that very clearly. Why do you always talk about abortion and gay marriages? Don't you have anything else to say? <laughs> That's the point. That's the point. So let's go back. Adam and Eve, do you believe in evolution? That's fine. That's fine. That's just another way of talking. Do you believe in in uh, liberation rather than redemption, but that's fine, that's fine, just go ahead. Do you believe in the equality of all believers? But that's fine, we don't have to talk about obedience. You see, do you believe uh, in the, in the, in that the Mass is a, is a communion of all believers where everybody gathers on Sunday? That's fine, you don't have to speak about it in, 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 as a sacrifice, and so on. So it is wide open, it is wide open to a church that is basically, the title is the, the Church of uh, Missionary Disciples. Be a Christian and show it to others, and stop arguing about little, about details that antagonize everybody. I agree with that. That's a, okay. that's a good thought. <laughs> Absolutely. So that, that's, that's really new. That's really new. And, uh, you know, it's not the text of a few rebels. Uh, um, Paul VI signed it, uh, he read it, he signed it, and it's official document. So uh, when you read it yourself, you don't notice what is not there, you only notice what is there, and at the end you say, gosh, that's really something, uh, a, a new perspective, isn't it? Absolutely. So from there on, that's really the beginning of my book, uh, and it inspires all the rest. Uh, I'm at, I don't know how much more you want to know about this topic. Um, um, I have a chapter. I visited 100 churches in the U.S. and Guatemala, and I, I recorded 100 sermons. And from what you may have learned from the first chapter, 
I find it very disappointing because uh, if uh, to be a Christian and an evangelical Christian, a Christian who spreads the word is the main topic, that is not found very often in, in, in the masses and the sermons. That's sad. We come to renewal, well, change, change, have a better Sunday liturgy, have people uh, interested uh, instead of having people uh, dropping out. Uh, and have sermons. Now, uh, when it comes to sermons, uh, that seems to be very negative to say it's not very good. Well, I, pre- I, I compare uh, sermons by priests with sermons by lay people, and I find striking differences. Hmm. The lay people know the Bible when they talk. They know Catholic doctrine. Of course, the priests do too, but they just don't talk about it. Uh, I compare with Protestant speakers. Protestant speakers speak about money, they speak about children, they speak about education, they speak about conflict and family. All this is absent. And that's the stuff of life, you know? We all have conflict, we have works, we have families, we have a problem with money. Absolutely. So, uh, so there's a long way to go there. And renewal, uh, the main point is renewal comes from the bottom up. Well, it can come from top down too, but uh, you have to mobilize everybody to be part of it, and for that you have to give them a vision, and that vision I find in Latin America. And what have you discovered about papal supremacy? Oh, <laughs> well, uh, let me put it very in historical perspective, so it's not polemical. Okay? Sure, absolutely. In in the nineteen forties, fifties, thirties, and so on. Democracy was seen as a weak government, uh, and uh, in the 30s to the 60s, all Western nations had strong governments, starting with Russia, Stalin, Hitler, uh, 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 Churchill, De Gaulle, uh, uh, in Italy, Spain, uh, in the United States too. We had strong governments, and at that time, the absolute power of the papacy was very functional. Actually, many Protestants envied the strong structure of the Catholic Church at that time. But things have changed. Things have changed. Now the Pope has absolute, uh, supreme, full, immediate, universal power to be exercised freely and always. Good God! There is nobody, there is no government in the whole world where you can do that. <laughs> you see? And the current Pope, he has a different viewpoint than others, hasn't he? Then he says, fine, I have all the power. I don't have to use it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to use it. He can have a chauffeur. Doesn't mean he has to use one. That's correct. You see? So in the car, that's one uh, theory. Now, I'm also a sociologist. Uh, how does things change in the Catholic Church? Well, things change through amnesia. Uh, If a theory is forgotten, well, it is just not theory anymore. So, for instance, uh, at one point, slavery was accepted. Well, that's forgotten. Nobody deeds about that anymore. The Catholic Church was against freedom of conscience, freedom of the press. Don't mention it. It has not been mentioned for 100 years. It's forgotten. So... Uh, if the papacy uses less of its power, it just will be progressively forgotten, and we move into a different mode, which is a church of strong participation from the top down. 
So it is very comforting that the Pope sends out emails. <laughs> it is. And he calls people by phone, you see. That's participation. Obviously, he can call everybody. That's not the point. The point is that everybody should be accessible. And that is that uh, everybody should be accessible and everybody should be open to the participation of all. Or put it differently, the head of the Catholic Church <clears throat> is not the Pope, it's Jesus Christ. If you dethrone Jesus Christ, you have, you have, you have a secular religion, right? Uh, the head is Jesus Christ. And the Pope, from the Pope down, everybody should listen to Jesus Christ first. So that's pretty evangelical. But that's pretty Christian, too. It has been that way from the beginning, so let's not change that. It certainly has been. That's, that's a great observation. Uh, how did you come to write this book? You've written over 434 pages, a lot of research in here. That's, that's a healthy read. All right. You know, I'm getting old. <laughs> they have advantages. They have advantages. I, I can use uh, much of what I have read in the last 50 years. Now, that's one advantage of, let me just say, I have one chapter based on, on what I learned as a student. Uh, that's 50 years ago. That's pretty, pretty interesting. I never got to use it. Now, why, why not use it now? Uh, I have studied canon law. I have read about canon law 50 years ago. I can put mm. it to use. I uh, was in Latin America, all right. That's really relatively recent. Uh, well, I've been to churches for many years, so I recorded 50 sermons, but I have heard maybe several several thousand in my lifetime. You yes. Know? So, so, so you probably have heard many thousands of sermons, too. I have. Is this, so, bo is so. this book going to be difficult for me to understand and absorb? No, 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 no. Oh, here is the advice of anybody to read it. The, the book consists of six, six, five, six, or seven chapters. Anyone is independent from the other. You can begin, you should begin with the easiest one. So maybe the last one is the easiest one, and you read another one. If you're tired of it, just drop it, just drop it. Each chapter is a little bit uh, independent. So if you're not interested in sermons, forget about sermons. If you're interested in Sunday liturgies, well, read that one. If you're interested in sociology, you have the first chapter. If you're interested in, in linguistics, you have a special chapter. The papacy, another chapter. Uh, okay, so so uh, don't feel you have to read 400 pages, which is, uh, I, I hate to have it 400 pages. I really tried to make it short, but... <laughs> too much information, too much of, of interest. Uh, uh, yes, 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 yes. And and who do you think this book is going to appeal to? Is this something a Bible student or scholar is going to gravitate toward, or can the regular folks also get something Oh, like sure, this? the regular people... Uh, see, it is more a book about spirituality than about scholarship. Uh, um, by that I mean, obviously, I have many footnotes and quotations and so on. It has to be documented. But it addresses people's real life. So if you go to church, whatever church it is, or no church, on Sunday or whatever day, you have some feelings about about what you're getting there. And I, for instance, I say that the basic point of any religious service, Catholic or not, but I only know it's Catholic, is to, to open the door to the transcendent. Well, if you don't find that, then you have a problem. And I address this issue. Second, I, I say it's the Bible, it's the gospel that should be the core 
of the sermon, not the web, not not politics, not funny stories, not being um, being relevant, you know. And if you go to a Sunday, let me just put one point, okay? Sure. At least one sermon in four is inaudible. Well, I don't know how you feel, how you know, explain that, but I have a hard time understanding some of these guys. Right. So, <laughs> so I tell people, twenty-five percent of you are not. Uh, not audible. So uh, improve your sound system, or speak better, or closer, or faster, farther to the microphone. That's something you can learn. <laughs> that's 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 good practical advice, and certainly that, need that in churches. That's not high high theology. That's no. not high theology. You have to be. Most sermons have no title and no main idea. Well, that's not abstraction. That's not scholarship. That's common sense. <laughs> well, okay. I'm getting just a little hype now. You're, you're getting on your soul. <laughs> My so, point is, he yes. doesn't, I'm not dealing with high-level abstractions. I'm dealing with spiritual, everyday life. And very That's practical advice, it sounds like. Right, right. The right. term Lazarus, where are you taking that? You're taking that from the New Testament. And right. Right is the image of the dead man who comes back to life. Absolutely. Well, I'm not saying the church is a dead man, but <laughs> the image is there. The image is coming back to life. Yes. That is, that is, you know, the main image I want to convey. Uh, uh, having been dead for three days or 300 years is not the point. Time to wake up. When you have wake up, yeah, wake up. I say wake up, yeah. Uh, actually, I don't know. I don't, the text of the Bible doesn't say wake up. It says come out or something like this. I say, Lazarus, you got to sleep. Wake up, please. Wake up. Rather than say you are dead. Get lost. You know, I want to be encouraging. But another part of that passage, one of the shortest uh, scriptures in the Bible, says that Jesus wept. Straightforward. Yep. He knew that Lazarus was going to come out of the grave, but he still wept over his yeah, condition. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, I think yeah, it's yeah, very appropriate yeah, to yeah. sound an alarm. Yeah. Yeah, I'd I, I, be glad to remember and remind us of that. We, uh, all Christians, usually have deep emotions for their church, and so do I. I do not like to see the church going down the drain, okay? Right. And I don't cry, but I do have deep feelings. And it is these deep feelings I'm addressing myself to in the readers. I believe many people feel sad that their church is declining. And what and do you that, what yeah. do you want readers to take away from this this book that you've written? Well, in very simple terms, the the the, the, the future is you is in your hands. Do something. Do something. Now obviously we we'll say I don't know what. Well read the book or read the conclusion. Read the conclusion. But uh, 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 you the the church is everybody. See, that's the point. point. See, today, if, I know if you're Catholic, but if you're Catholic, you know, most Catholics say church when they mean the hierarchy. So we say the church teaches. No, the church does not teach. It's the Pope who teaches, the priest who teaches, the bishop who teaches, the people don't teach. Well, uh, many people say the church is the hierarchy. No, the church is you. Do something about it. Absolutely. Do something about it. I think everybody can agree with that one. Yeah, <laughs> but see, it takes it takes some prodding. It's like telling students do some homework. Yeah, sure, but it takes some prodding. It may take four hundred pages to get them slightly, you know, engaged a little bit. 
so 400 pages. I the next volume is on spirituality. So I say uh, this uh, hopefully will not be 400 pages. I don't know when it's 400 pages, but you have to get people uh, progressively uh, involved. You know, in prayer life, in reading, uh, uh, just one simple thing in many in many churches. In the back of the church, they could sell books and make money. <laughs> they mm. could make money. Well, and the people would read books. But that's a very simple thing. If the church doesn't have books, read books, read books, read books of any kind. This one or another. So do something. So that's what I want people to take uh, take books with. It. I appreciate it, it, that. I can appreciate that that encouragement. That's a very good observation. Uh, were there any challenging parts to writing this book, other than trying to keep it short? And you. Well, oh yeah, there is challenging. You know, I'm pretty I'm pretty critical when it comes uh, when it comes to Sunday uh, services. Sunday services are good and dull. Well, two words go together: good and dull. Good enough to go there if you have been going out for 50 years. Not good enough to come back if you have, if you are not you have it. Young people don't go there. Young people stay out. It's too dull. Uh, adults may say, "Oh, it's good enough." Well, it's good enough, but it's not. That's not good enough anymore. So I I, I have very strong words on some pages. You know, when I say the Pope is uh, has. You know, I don't know if you notice it, but papal supremacy is the title given to Henry VIII over the Church of England. Yes. <laughs> so, so that's pretty insulting, isn't it? Okay. I hope it they certainly. don't take it that way. <laughs> it certainly could be, couldn't it? So there is, there are some puns uh, here and there, but that is not. I. Uh, it's not essentially polemical, not at all. Uh, it wants to be constructive. So there are there are some 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 kicking <laughs> here and there. Well, I can hear your passion. The volume two says, "Wake up, Lazarus: Paths to Catholic Renewal," and the author Pierre Hegy. Thank you, Pierre, for visiting with us today. Where can we get a copy of this book? Oh, anywhere, anywhere. The easiest would be Amazon, I guess, because Amazon is widely known. Do you have a, a website? Oh, sure. I have a website. No, I, oh, actually, if you want me to give me publicity for the website, I have a website uh, called wakeuplazarus.net. Wakeuplazarus.net. It is a discussion group. It is a discussion group with about 300 people where we discuss these kind of things. So if people uh, like to discuss, they can read what other people have said. It's posted. I have a great variety of topics. The next topic uh, for uh, next month is what happened to sin. <laughs> what happened to sin disappeared. Mm. So uh, let's hear from you. So there is a web page, and it also has a reference to my book. Excellent. For Steve Jorgensen and iUniverse, this is J. Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Age Success Stories with Helen Wu, Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown, and after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 
25 success stories from successful entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. Today our author is Luis A. Marrero. He has written a book titled The Path to a Meaningful Purpose. Psychological Foundations of, and this is a tough word for me to pronounce, so I'm going to try it anyway, logoteleology. Did I get close, Luis? Yes, you did. Good job. <laughs> Well, excellent. This is uh, also known as the Meaningful Purpose Psychology. Tell me about this book, Luis. What is your background? How did you come to write this? Yeah, well, let me tell you a little bit about myself. Uh, background, even though it's a psychological book, my background is in human resource management. That's what I did my master's on. Uh, however, the thesis, the thesis work that I did was in transactional analysis psychology applied to a business problem. So that's what started my passion with psychology years back. Uh, since then, I've been an avid student of uh, psychology. I did postgraduate work at NTL Institute uh, studying organization development, which is a field related to social psychology. So I have a lot of that also that I've, I've studied on my own. Um, and the, the, the reason why I wrote the book was uh, a few years back, um, you know, I went through a very difficult situation in my life, and I was trying to come to terms with what was happening. Uh, so that led me then to dive in into psychology books and try to find, um, you know, uh, get a, a little bit of understanding of what was happening in my life. And I come to discover that, um, you know, I have been living my life in a way that even though I have been highly successful in great measure, there were some things that, you know, I had not learned in, in the process of growth of maturing as a, as a person. So the way that I tackled this was to dive into psychology and pretty much deal with a, uh, the question of, you know, I've been living my life successfully, most people do also, um, but at the same time, we're surrounded by answers and somehow we can't tackle um, or learn from them, uh, from these answers that are available to improve our lives. So what I'm concerned about and what the book is all about is helping us understand why is it that we're surrounded by answers but somehow we can't implement the solutions. And Jay, for example, you see this happening in Congress nowadays. It's not like our Congress people or, you know, uh, people in the United Nations, for instance, or families don't know how to solve day-to-day -day problems and issues. Um, we, humanity suffers or goes, uh, has difficulty despite the fact that the answers are available. So that's what I'm intrigued about. How is it that we have all these solutions surrounding us, but somehow we can't crack the code of getting along better, solving our significant problems, the front one? That's a long answer to a short question. It is, but uh, explain the significance of Cafe Mocha. Ah, well, the event of the Cafe Mocha was when I went into, uh, uh, back in 1999, uh, it was close to the holidays, and uh, I go to Barnes & Noble store, and uh, as you know, they have this coffee shop usually, and uh, this large uh, bookstores, and I went there looking for the answer to my question in terms of, uh, you know, uh, how can I solve, you know, my problem in a way that is uh, helpful uh, to me? And I came across uh, Viktor Frankl's book. Uh, he's uh, the person who invented logotherapy. Uh, he wrote many books, but one of the major famous uh, 
was Man's Search for Meaning. And it was a quote that really struck me, which is life ultimately means take the responsibility to find the right answer to his problems and to fulfill the task which is constantly set for each individual. So um, I just took my KFMOC, I went to the aisle, found the book, found this particular quote, and it struck me, uh, you know, uh, as a very significant uh, lesson uh, for me to pay attention to, because what it pointed uh, to, uh, like I said before, is that we are surrounded by answers. The answers are present. We, we have uh, access to all the answers to solve most of humanity's problems. But why is it, again, was the question that we have um, these solutions available, and why is it this difficult for us to implement so mankind, I concluded, and I'm quoting from my book, and uh, mankind, mankind, I concluded, does not suffer from a lack of answers. Rather, it suffers, suffers despite the answers being available. So that's the central thesis of the book. What does that happen and helps answer that, that particular dilemma? And Viktor Frankl had a very challenging early life, didn't he, and still came out with a positive attitude. That's correct. Viktor Frankl, as you know, uh, he was not only the father of... Uh, with therapy, but he was also interned for three and a half years in the death camps of the Nazis, and he lost uh, a significant number of his families, including his wife, who was pregnant, his parents. So he was able to use um, meaningful, uh, meaningful concepts, you know, how to look at life through a meaningful lens, to be able to understand what was happening and to survive through the Holocaust. And in essence, was you know. The meaning that we give to situations is what's going to actually lead to a particular end uh, or product or, or lifestyle. So he was able to maintain his spirits high and help other fellow inmates uh, survive the Holocaust. But just being optimistic, looking at the future, what could be, and having that optimism help him and help other people. And, and thankfully, he survived, wrote his books, and we're all benefiting from that. Yes, Viktor Frankl was well-received as an author and as a proponent of a new approach to psychology. Indeed. This book you've written, I'm sure, will have some three- and four-syllable words in it. Is this going to be difficult for the common layman to read, or is this designed for people in the industry? Uh, basic, I wrote, this is the first book in an anthology. Um, I want this first book uh, to be read by everybody, of course. Uh, but it, particularly for my colleagues in the field of psychology, sociology, and the social sciences, it brings uh, about information about this new science, this new psychological method, uh, based on sound research. Um, I didn't want to start with a self, self-help book based on an opinion. I wanted to start with a psychology book, which also serve as a self-help book, but based on facts, based on evidence, uh, based on the best research out there. So I've had uh, lay people read it, they get it. Um, I, uh, done, I have done my best to put definitions in the book so that people can understand what I mean when I say an introject, for instance, what is a live script. So all those have been clearly defined in the book, so any any reader can find um, the book easy to read. There might be some areas that might be a little bit challenging, but overall, it's a good read for most people. Definitely people with a psychology background, they, they get it, they will get it. Um, but like I said, there's a first book in an ontology. It is uh, designed to uh, create a very solid foundation to this new method. 
I'm working the second book right now. I have around 10 titles that I'm thinking about writing in the anthology. Um, so people will be able to read future books and say, well, where does this come from? They can always go back to book number one, which, by the way, I'll be updating from time to time so that they can see what is the psychological foundation for, for what I'm writing in subsequent books so they can know that this is based on sound uh, concept theory uh, research, not based on another person giving an opinion. In the field of psychology, are there any controversial ideas in here that you've espoused? I don't think so, because um, I have quoted from reputable um, theories, and you know, like Dr. Carol Dweck, uh, and you know, uh, you know, there's a number of people you can read in the book. If you look at the biography, it's very rich in terms of people that done research uh, on the book. I also have psychologists and a psychiatrist, for instance, read the manuscript as 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 it was evolving. Nobody came back and saying there's some objectionable things here uh, written in the book. Uh, Quite the contrary, they thought they, they thought that uh, this was very unique. Uh, it really enhanced uh, concepts of legotherapy and some other um, uh, concepts and uh, research on, on the field of psychology. So I feel very strong that it's going to have a wide acceptance, and the people will find very uh, very little to complain about in terms of the content of the book. Um, so I feel very confident that it is sound, um, and, uh, and and based on the feedback that I've received so far, I get the confirmation. Excellent. Any themes in the book that you believe are contemporary and work with today's society and our needs? Uh, yeah. The What the book does is to help people understand who they are and how they think and how they function. Why do they have this particular pattern or approach to... Um, to life, you know, why are they succeeding or not succeeding? Why do they succeed in certain things that they don't succeed in other things? So it pretty much helps understand that whatever meaning you're giving to yourself, whatever meaning you're giving to situations, that's going to have an impact on how you behave. So core to logoteleology or the science of um, uh, of you know meaningful purpose psychology. It's about people understanding how am I viewing situations? How do I uh, decide to interpret a situation? What is the meaning that I want to communicate to the other person? What kind of an impact is that meaning going to have? How are people going to, what meaning are they going to give to my meaning? And are, are we going to be, is this communication going to put us in the same page or is it going to create problems for us? What is my, <clears throat> excuse me, my intention when I'm communicating towards other people? So we can assess based on the results that we're getting uh, in our interactions with other people, our, our lives, you know, style of life, everything from how much money we make to how much people like us or don't like us, the things that we succeed or don't succeed, all those things can be determined by understanding what is the meaning system that we're uh, using, applying in our daily life that explains the results that I'm getting. Um, so hopefully that that will help people understand what you know, how this can help them. So understand the meaning, and you understand um, the results that you're getting. Uh, would you describe your book as a self-help book, or would it be more of a clinical study book? I would say it's both. The clinical component is explains the theory, uh, the, the method, the research behind the conclusions, the models that I'm expressing in the book. The self-help component is, oh, okay, based on this is based on sound research. I can trust this and I can apply this in my life. For instance, um, one thing that people can do through the book is how do you uh, pretty much define your life purpose? 
if you understand that an identity is based on the meaning that you give to life, that meaning will have an impact on a type of motivation that leads you to a behave in a particular way. If you understand that, then you can say, okay, what kind of impact do I want to have in life? What kind of a difference do I want to have in life? And it's helping people choose uh, to uh, have a, 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 a belief system that gives them the results that they're seeking. So, for instance, an identity, um, a sound identity will answer the question, what do I do, uh, for whom, and how does it benefit them? Um, this benefit component, Jay, is also very important because what the book uh, has shown uh, through research is that in order to succeed, there's five things that we strive for and we have to be good at. The first one is we have to care for other people. We have to be loving people to one another. We have to see things through a lens of love. The second one is, um, you know, to be do things and take actions that are peaceful, that help people uh, have a peaceful relationship, uh, uh, you know, uh, with you know, with others. That we have a, a peace of mind and that we have a, a style of life that brings peace to all of us. The third one that we're striving for is happiness. So it's love, peace, happiness, and uh, there's a lot of research that's been done. I also put in the book around the importance of people being happy and the impact that that has on the quality of life, productivity of work, so forth and so on. The fourth one is engagement uh, or interest. Um, and by the way, these go in the same sequence in terms of what should happen first. So it's first is love, second is peace, third is drive for happiness. And the fourth one is get engaged in doing interesting things. We all have a very strong appetite. Um, for doing things that are meaningful, that are doing things that have a positive impact, they're interesting. Everything from, you know, we, and we, we've heard about the bucket list, you know, uh, going to the Louvre or going to theater or, or being at work doing an interesting project, being with interesting people, doing interesting things in life, things that keep us motivated and engaged with life, makes life significant and rich and meaningful. So that's what local teleology is attempting to do. And the last one is prosperity. At the end of the day, we all want to feel we're striving to have the sense of forward movement. It's not only financial, but also in terms of when I look back at my life, good things are happening. I can see progress. So it needs to be in that order based on my research. If you start again with love, second is peace and peace of mind. Third is do things that will make you and people happy. Do interesting things as a fourth one. And then the fifth one, uh, you know, prosper, uh, make progress in life. Unfortunately, in, in too many situations, not always, but in too many situations, people start uh, making life plans with the goal of, of financial gain. There's nothing wrong with desiring to be prosperous, to make money, to advance their lives. The problem lies that if you make that the primary task of your life without putting emphasis on how you're going to help other people, um, that's, you know, that doesn't really help. There's a lot of research, again, that's, that's been that's shown and demonstrated that people who start uh, their lives putting emphasis on financial gain uh, live unhappy lives. Uh, local teleology, again, emphasizes starting from do things that show and demonstrate that you're adding value to people, that you're showing that you care, that there's no drama between you and them. There's We, we have peace of mind. We have a great relationship amongst ourselves. We can cooperate, uh, uh, transcend many times. The third one is acting in ways that people uh, feel that they can have, you know, humor and enjoy and be happy when they're interacting with us, doing fun stuff, doing interesting things, intriguing things, fascinating things, inventing, uh, building, constructing, 
And then finally, when you do that in that order, it leads to progress, at least the sense of forward movement. Um, money follows. There's prosperity. Wealth will follow. But it has to start with being a caring person, bringing peace of mind to others, uh, eliminating drama, being happy, doing fun, productive things together, intelligent things together in order to bring prosperity. If you start from the prosperity point of view, I want to make money without paying attention to how to do that in a way that will be sustainable, our values are all screwed up. Things start to, uh, the wheels start to fall off the car, as they say. People are unhappy. They might make tons of money, but that doesn't, doesn't necessarily make them more happy uh, because they're putting the emphasis of making money. It's not bringing value to people's lives. And that's what Logoteliology also tries to, um, you know, help and convince people to understand. So setting your priorities in that order certainly will bring a better quality of life. Definitely, definitely. And, and if you look at his, excuse me, if you look at history, starting from um, you know being um, uh, wealth oriented doesn't bring happiness. And not only research, research says that. Just look at history. Uh, Any time that we try to grab or take away from other people, um, make money at the expense of the benefit of other people. Um, there's pain that comes with that. We've seen that happen in our country. Um, Enron, Tyco, and some of these other companies that collapse. Um, a lot of talented people, a lot of very bright people, but like they say, their emotional intelligence many times, um, their greed uh, didn't help the cause of the people that were serving, their employees. There was a backlash because we the, the emphasis wasn't making money, no, it was providing a great service that then if you deliver that service in a quality way, it would have, in a meaningful way, it's going to have a, a financial impact eventually in at the bottom line of the company. And that's what I'm trying to communicate, not only to individuals, but also to teams and companies. Start by having an agenda that adds value to your stakeholders. Money will follow. Well, in order to keep the happiness side going, I want to step sideways. I understand when you were younger, you played in a band. Are you still involved in music? A little bit, yeah. From time to time, I try to. Uh, uh, I love the Beatles, in particular, Rolling Stones. Uh, so now you know my my age, pretty much. Um, yeah, but I love to play guitar. I like to play the bass. Uh, so I love music quite a bit, also. So I, that's just enjoyable. And at the same time, I also have a family. Uh, you know, that also plays instruments. Uh, one of my children, Christian, uh, plays the violin, and other one, uh, the next one, Christopher, the youngest, uh, is also into guitar playing. He plays his own band. So we have music in our in our home. We love music. That sounds exciting. That should bring a lot of enjoyment and personal uh, satisfaction to you. Yeah, it does. It does. I'm really happy. I'm really happy with um, um, you know applying, as a matter of fact, you know meaningful purpose psychology in my personal life and bringing that to my home. Uh, and I've seen the benefit. This thing does work. Uh, and I've been my own guinea pig, like I say in the first chapter. I've been trying this out of myself, and I can see the positive results of living this style of life. Well, thank you for sharing that. The book, again, is titled The Path to a Meaningful Purpose. The author, Luis A. Marrero. Thank you, Luis. Thank you, Jay. And how can, we, how can we get a copy of your book? Uh, Amazon.com or uh, Barn, Barnes & Nobles, also the uh, websites. Uh, people can get stuff bound, heartbound. They can also get an electronic copy of the book. Uh, but Amazon and Barnes and & Noble's web pages are the best sources to get a copy. Well, thank you, and we look forward to hearing from you in the future. Thank you so much, Jay. It's been a pleasure. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. 
iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.